being an elite athlete and you compete at the highest level and with that you're also a woman you're always going to come under so much scrutiny anyway welcome to little revolutions brought to you by frida on today's episode we speak with british olympian annika anara in this conversation we talk about working in spaces where you might not feel safe seen or supported about the decision to speak up and demand for more about knowing what is right for you when there are no clear right answers. I want to dive right in, but before we do, I want to give you the chance to introduce yourself because we don't like to define people, so however you want to define yourself and introduce yourself. Oh, how would I define myself? Do you know what? My my I'm so used to it was always Anika and Nora the athletes, but now because I've just stretched into different areas <laughs> and different professions. It's, it's weird, but it's good. But um, yes, so I am Annika Onora, um, Team GB Olympian, um, Olympic medalist, world championship medalist, multiple medalist in track and field, competing for Great Britain for 20 years. And I'm also a speaker and a recent author of my book, My Hidden Race. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so... I, uh, I feel like I want to start with, I'm not an athlete, so I'm always curious when I talk to athletes because, like, did you always want to do this? Did Was it, like, were you, like, was, like, seven-year-old Annika, like, off running track and field? Like, what was it like? What was your journey into sport like? You know what? It was kind of a, a really good one. So I come from a very sporting family. So because my family is super sporty, like, my one of my older brothers, he was a professional footballer. Um, so he was like my idol growing up um, in the 90s. And then my other brothers also played sports. One played basketball. He played really, really good, like county level. Um, and then my other family members, my sisters, the rest of my family, they all played sports for the most part. Um, so I, I don't think I had any choice but to become an athlete um but yeah that was probably where I got the bug from from kind of watching my older siblings um just yeah just enjoy having it as the job especially my older my older brother Ephem um and then I was just inspired from watching the Olympics as a young girl the Olympics was everything like two two and a half weeks of just watch, watching back-to-back sports but it was definitely the athletics that brought the the best out of me just watching it I always felt inspired so yeah it, it started pretty young and yeah I, that's where I got the bug and you've obviously written your book which you mentioned and we want to get into that but before I tell you I define it in any way or describe it could you tell us about your book and how like what it, what it's about for people who haven't picked it up yet and who are curious about your story or have heard pieces of it and relate or want to know more? Yeah, so my book, My Hidden Race, is a book about me. <laughs> it's about me and my life um, growing up um, as a young black girl into womanhood, as a professional athlete, as a professional sportswoman, as a black woman, black British woman, um, facing different identities. So am I British? Am I Scouse? Am I Nigerian? So I talk a lot about how everything is just kind of interlinked. Um, but then also the highs and lows of being a elite athlete. So when people read books, I really wanted to capture the reader and not tell them stories about particular workouts or, you know, this is what I ate today. Cause it's not a vlog, you know, it's not me blogging. This is 
my my whole life. So I want I want the reader to be captivated. So I'm like, okay, well, I've definitely gone through some things that would, you know, draw their attention. So, you know, there's a lot of things that I talk about, different things that I've encountered, some experiences that I haven't, you know, spoken about to anyone. You know, my friends, my closest family didn't even know. Um, different different things that I encountered, like um, assault or sexual assault. Um, there was, you know, I had eating disorder. I had body dysmorphia. Um, I also, also, you know, trigger warning, attempted suicide. So there was a lot of highs and lows in the midst of trying to compete at a high level, but also win medals and, and you know, have the opportunity to stand on the podium. So, yeah, I went through a lot. Um, and, you know, it is, it's, there's some sad parts, but there's also some funny parts as well. But also, I think it's a really, really good self-help book because, you know, a lot of people have contacted me and said, you know, my book has inspired them. Um, you, you doesn't matter what they've gone through or who they are or, you know, what they face in their life. You know, I've given people hope. And I think um, if I've done that, knowing that I've done that is probably one of the best things that have come out of, you know, writing this book, just having the opportunity to give hope to others. You talked about how there were certain things you've written about which you hadn't really talked to your family about, your friends about. And I I imagine that there, there are like the levels of disclosure that you go through almost where you have to feel safe enough to share with the people you're closest to. And then you feel safe enough to share with the world broadly. And how did you get to the point where it was like, this is the moment where I feel like I need to tell my story now and I want to tell my story now. I think it happened more so when I retired from the sport. So I retired um, at the end of 2019 and prior to 2019, I met an amazing journalist. So I've been interviewed by loads of journalists my whole entire career. Um, but the interview that I did with Don McRae, who's a journalist for The Guardian, he um, we did an interview about my, me telling my story about how I contracted malaria 10 months prior to winning an Olympic medal in Rio. And I didn't tell anyone. Only my my training partners knew, maybe one or two training partners, my coach knew. But the majority of the sport, the federation, they didn't know what had gone on. Um, and he he just wanted to do a deep dive and into, you know, figuring out why, because it was such a big deal. You know, how do you contract, contract malaria and then end up winning an Olympic medal? So... Yeah, off the back of that, you know, the interview went really well. The article was very, very well written. And, you know, he could, he said to me afterwards, there's a lot more to you than just this malaria story. I can tell, you know, would you ever consider writing a book? And I was like, no, who is going to buy the book? <laughs> like, who would want to read about my life? Who'd want to read about my story? So, yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it, 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 it was definitely food for thought and he said okay when we when you retire we're going to have another conversation so two and a half years later I retired officially and he's like are you ready to write your book yet I was like oh okay let's see what we can cook up with um so yeah so we started it at the back end of 2019 early 2020 and then I kind of had to figure out what was going to go in what did I want to tell um what didn't you know, what, what did I, what did, what do people want to hear? You know, what's, what's, what's the good part? What's the bad part? But in, in, in it all, you have to be honest about your journey, your story, because this is you, this is what you encountered. Um, so when people see me, uh, people who followed my sport, my career, 
um, when they've seen me competing on the track, they would never have known I'd gone through, you know, a really bad incident or gone through drama or, you know, there was loads of stuff going on behind the scenes that I didn't tell anyone. So that's how we came up with the title, My Hidden Race. So I was, you know, it was all glitz and glam and getting the job done on the track. But behind all of that, I was going through so many rough moments um, and I wanted that to reflect not just the content of the book, but also the title as well. I imagine there's a version of you as well that like has written this book for the younger Annika's out there who are maybe at the starting line of their own, like their own versions of the hidden race. Right. And are starting to like the young black British girls who are starting to play whatever sport it is and are figuring out their own place in, in this mm-hmm. world and in that specific world. What, like, what do you, what, what do you want to, what do you want to tell them? Like, what do you hope that they get take can take away from your story? Or like, what is the, the thing that you want to leave them with? I think it would be, well, there's so many things. I think one of the things that stuck out to me and, and that um I've got so many, so much good feedback from, especially from young black girls is that, you know, they will tell you, you know, I've gone through this as well. I've gone through living in, um going to an all girls school where you're predominantly in a white girls school and, um, you don't you don't encounter racism, but you want to see more people who look like you. Um, so so that was one of the things I encountered. So when they tell me, you know, I went through that, but then they read my book and I give them hope and you know, I tell them that, you know, that's okay. Like make sure that you're, you know, you've got good friends to support you. But if you want to go out and, you know, meet new people who look like you, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It may it may mean you need to leave your city or your town or whatever in order to, to do that. But if you want to connect with people like you, like don't be afraid to do it. Take that leap of faith. Because that is what that is exactly what I did in, in pretty much every part of my career. And then you've got young young athletes in general who you know, go through body image issues. You know, I, I was constantly scrutinized about my body my whole entire career. And to be honest, it only started to get better and easier, so to speak, as I got older. Because at that point, I was winning medals. I was running personal bests. I was performing well. So no one could tell me anything. But ultimately, it's only when you look back and you think, honestly, it was always their problem. So they're the ones with the problem because they don't, they don't, they're not used to looking, they're not used to looking at a body that looks like yours, especially in this country. Whereas when you go to the, when you see the girls in the US team or the girls in the Caribbean, Jamaica or Bahamian girls or even West African girls, we've got similar body types. So it was definitely, you know, a a culture, culture clash at times for, for people who, Again, people don't don't look like you who lead the organization, lead the sport. So they don't necessarily think you're a good reflection on the on the sport based on your body type. But you know, I I ultimately these young girls have been like, you know, thank you for inspiring us, thank you for telling your story. And honestly, that means the world to me. For you when you were when you were that young young girl, young athlete, and was it like was it meeting the other the other athletes from places like the US or the Caribbean or West Africa where you were like, oh, I'm not alone. And what was like, where were you finding the, the not even the role models, but just like the community of people who made you feel safe in your own body and that you were enough and you were good and all, all of the things, right? Like, where were you finding that? It was most definitely seeing young, 
females who were the same age as me, who had the same body shape, body type. You're literally looking at like the US girls and, you know, these girls will come out through the US collegiate system into senior level. So like, it's not like someone's come up to them and said, oh yeah, you're fat, you're overweight. To them, they were just normal and they'd never get scrutinized. Like they would, but not to the extent where you would as a British athlete. Um, so when you'd sit there and have conversations with them, they it was sometimes the conversations would last for hours because it's so relatable. So it, honestly, it makes you think you're not going crazy for the most part. Uh, <laughs> it actually helps for you to not just offload, but like it allows you to see that, you know, you are doing well, you are performing at your best. And, you know, ultimately it's other people's problems if if they've got an issue with you. It it makes me think of something I, I read. I don't know if it was the same journalist who wrote this article about your book in The Guardian about you talked about your experiences where you would turn to your white teammates and say, this is what happened to me. And there was a lot of gaslighting going on there or people just not yeah. trusting you when you were not even speaking your truth, but the truth and saying, this is what happened. And it was just like, oh, no, that couldn't have. And I imagine it's similar in what you're describing now as well with just feeling like safe and like enough in your body and like, oh, I'm not alone, right? Like I'm feeling seen and like there are other people who get what I'm going through. Did you have, did you have to like seek it out? Where, when did you get to the point where you found people where you were like, okay, this is like, this is good. Where Was it an intentional journey where you were like, I need to, I need to find my people. I need to find people who, who get what I'm going through because this isn't sustainable. Was it you turning to your family where you had siblings who were athletes who right. understood it? Like, where were you getting that from? Again, from athletes who look like me or who had similar similar issues or discrepancies to mine, but also from my close training group. So different members of the group I'm super close with. So the people who you train with and you do workouts with, because you're together day in, day out, this is like a full-time job. So no, you're not going to get on with, with everyone, but yes, you can build close friendships with them. So I was very, very fortunate to have a couple of people in, in particular who I was super close with where they would, you know, they were aware of whatever issues I had related to my body type or body shape or people making comments and stuff. And they would always be the first person to shut that person down in terms of what they're saying or just be supportive and just allow me to just just say, listen, it's a reflection of them. It's not a reflection of you. You just keep doing what you're doing. Um, just keep doing what you're doing. Like you're performing well. Um, and even if you weren't, again, you go back to the drawing board and you find ways to fix it. But don't allow other people to basically dictate how you should be mentally, especially as they could never do what you do. Did you have a lot of people who were telling you how you should be and what you should be doing? Was that like other than like the coaches whose job it potentially was to tell you like, you know, change this in your posture or do this or do that, like specific things. Were you hearing a lot of like, this is, this is how you should be. This is, this is what you should be doing. Was this should coming from a lot of people as, I mean, as it does for all of us, but was it like especially intensified because of who you are and the, the role you were playing? Yeah, there definitely was. I think one of our, one of my previous uh, performance directors was, who was, he was very, very notorious for, scrutinizing a lot of the athletes especially a lot of the female athletes 
And I knew from the first time I met him, this was going to be hell. <laughs> I just knew it was. I knew it was going to be hell. I knew he had an issue with a lot of the black girls who he didn't consider who were performing well. He thought, like, we needed to change our diet. You know, why weren't we running as well as the Jamaicans? Were we not working out hard enough? You know, what is, like, it was constant. It was all the time, all the time. So he would always, there was a lot with him. There was a lot of, oh, you should be doing this. Or, you know, if if not, <clears throat> if not, why aren't you doing this? It was It was very much like, yeah, you should be doing this this way. You should be doing this that way. And yeah, it was it was a constant battle. So I, d- I definitely don't miss those days. <laughs> yeah. Sounds exhausting. This is a stupid question for me on the outside, never having in any way played professional sport. Like in those situations, are you allowed, Not e- I don't even know if allowed is the word, like can you speak up? Can you say, no, I'm not going to do that? Or do you just have to like nod and smile and go along with whatever they're saying? Oh. At times you would speak up. But the problem is, if you if there was ever at any point um, some sort of thing that could lead to confrontation, it becomes difficult because if you're in the sport at my level and you're fu- you're relying on funding from the federation and you've signed this contract to perform, and you know what I've learned is when you're in a full time job, so you got when you're in a full time job. The norm, the average person will be on a salary and based on how they perform, they will get a bonus or they will be promoted or whatever. But you'll always get your salary. So you get your year on year salary unless you choose to move in, in a different direction. With our sport, everything is based on your performance in a year. So if you have a bad year, if you have an injury, if you um underperform, if you are constantly getting hurt or if you have a couple of bad races that don't get you to the championship, don't even get you barely on the start line, fully fit, especially if you've had a successful season the year before, there's there's a lot of things, there's a lot of factors at play, because if this is your bread and butter, you rely on funding from the federation, you rely on your shoe sponsor, so Nike, Adidas, New Balance, etc. Um, and you also may have personal, other personal sponsors and endorsements as well so if you if you're signing all these contracts and you're not performing well they also may involve you being cut there's a percentage that may be cut in the contract or if you don't hit those targets especially being on funding you get taken off completely and then getting taken off is so much worse because then it's going to take ages and it's going to take you twice as hard in order to get put back on so there was definitely a lot, a lot of factors at play. So when you're young and you're vulnerable, you're just like, you don't you don't say anything. You're just like, yeah, okay, you're just compliant. But it's only as you get older and you start to see things and you're like, well, no, that's not right. Or, you know, that's not fair. And you do start to speak up for yourself. So maybe even if you butt heads, ultimately, there may be a way in which you can compromise. It doesn't always happen because they it's a business at the end of the day. So... They want to make sure they're getting as much money out of this this system and out of your performance as possible. It must be really hard because you can't have a bad day or like a few bad days, especially when you're dealing with so much coming from all sides, telling you all kinds of things, mm-hmm. judging you in many different ways. 
you're dealing potentially with sexual assault. Like there's yeah. so much happening and you just have to keep All going. The time, that's how it was. I, what I learned to do, which isn't healthy. And I know that now, especially as I've come out with the sport and I'm a lot older is you can't afford to compartmentalize things anymore especially all the trauma. And that is what I did. I realized it wasn't healthy at the time and in that moment. But I also was on this mission to perform well, to win medals, to get my opportunity to stand on the podium, to run fast. That was my job. So all the other stuff that I was dealing with, it just had to take a back seat. And I look back and I'm like, how did I ever do that? How did I, because, you know, even now when I talk to my friends and, you know, my book, I've, I've, I've literally been an open book. So when they tell me things that have happened, they, you know, they, they're very um, sympathetic. Um, but they're also like, you know, why didn't you tell us this happened? Why didn't you tell us this happened? I'm like, wait, what happened? And they're like, well, remember when this happened? Like when you encountered this, you know, suicide attempt or this, you know, this person tried to assault you, um, I'm like, wait, how do you know about that? So in my mind, I'm thinking, gosh, I completely forgot I've spoken about these things because I'm so used to compartmentalizing every bit of information. So it's only now I'm starting to get used to it because I've like the book's been out eight months now. Um, and yeah, it's it's made me realize like I'm going to continue to shout from the rooftops about these different things, these different situations, because, you know, you don't know who you're helping as well as yourself. And I imagine for a lot of people who watch this, listen to this, whether they're athletes or not, like, I know I can relate in my own way of, you have to figure out, like, like what you were saying, right? You have to do your job every day because do you stay in the system to change the system? How much do you compromise? At what point? Like, I've definitely had my own version of, like, oh, I don't think I can deal with, like, this racist atmosphere anymore. I need to get out. It is, like, actively bad for me. Um but also, like, if I stay in it 10 days longer, or two months longer, or one year more, right. I could maybe make more of a difference or I could get to the next level and then, you know, could say something. And how did you, like, how were you thinking <sighs> through that? I, I would just stay focused on my job and not allow anything or anyone to, to break me, I suppose. Um, I, I would always deal with a lot of challenges. One of, one of the chapters in the book is called Challenge Annika. And obviously it's based on, um, it's based on me and just the different things I had to encounter in that particular period. But it's also, it reminded me of um, a TV show. There was, there was a, I don't know if you guys remember, Annika Rice. She had a TV show in the 90s, 80s, 90s. And she was always, she had, I can't remember, it was like, scavenger hunt some type of hunt show where people had to go and do this and do that and at, at times I literally felt like challenge Annika I was always on this mission to do this to do that I was always moving on to the next thing I always everything had to be I was very strategic about how I had to plan my season what I was eating what I was wearing what who I was you know whether I was out late and you know it, it was about being professional ultimately and you know I don't regret any of that, but the one of the things I do regret was probably not speaking to help to you know to other people about the help that I needed in those moments because, like I said, it's not always healthy. I imagine it's also scary asking for help. It's scary for everyone to ask for help, and then when you have the added pressure of 
well, if they think I can't do my job, if I ask for help, mm -hmm. do I, do I ask for help? Yeah, definitely. And that was always the fear that I was always, I always had so much fear of people saying, well, we can't help you. So I'm, yeah, one of the, one, the other thing I realized through the process of writing the book was I didn't ask for help because I was always scared in case people would just let me down. So I would always find a way to figure things out myself. So that's why I didn't ask. I just got used to not asking for help because it was always, you know, don't worry, I'll figure it out. I'll do it myself. And then even when I would, you know, force myself to ask someone or an individual or group of people for help, you're already anticipating them saying no. So, so in that scenario, you would have a plan A. So their, so your plan A is them saying yes. And then you proceed forward with how they can assist you or help you. But in my mind, I'm thinking, they're going to go for plan B. They're just going to say, no, we can't help you. So you have to revert back to plan B, which is what you should have done in the first place. And then you think, oh my gosh, I feel so stupid. I've asked for help. And it was just a waste of time. But not everyone's always going to be in a position to help and that's okay. But the ones that are and the ones that have done, I've been super, super grateful for. So I've definitely learned to ask for help a lot more. And I think that's definitely helped me um a lot especially since I've retired from the sport and come out of it I, I do ask for help and I, I give myself um breaks um I don't feel as fatigued as I did I am competing at a high level and I'm just learning to just love myself a lot more do you feel like you're asking for help more now like is it I imagine there's a part of it that's easier because your job has changed a little bit but do you feel comfortable asking for help and I imagine for, for someone like me, at least, it's a lifelong process of like, I'm okay asking for help today, but tomorrow I might not be. Right. But do you feel like it's getting easier with time? It's definitely getting easier, yes, because, you know, if, if there's a way in which someone can help me, so I'm just not having to be stressed about something or someone or an incident or, you know, I can't I, I can't revert back to the old Annika. The old Annika would just you know, mosey on along and just wouldn't ask for help and would just always find a way to make it happen. Because again, in, in our sport, in my sport, you're, you know, you're pretty much independent from being a teenager. So because I went pretty much pro at the age of 16, 17, there was no, you know, going out to ha in the park to hang around with your friends. There was no staying up late. There was no, you know, none of that stuff. I just had to be professional if you want to make it to this level um and I was just on this journey to greatness so in order to do that I needed to be just very very strict with everything you know so I didn't want to you know deviate from the plan or just not give myself the best opportunity to compete at the highest level um I just wished I'd asked for a lot a lot more help in those moments but I'm, I'm I think I did okay on the other end <laughs> without without having to burden people too much it's also not a burden to ask for help right like yeah, they'd say no if they can't. i'm unlearning trust me i'm, I'm unlearning oh, I'm, I'm i'm still unlearning this too if if you had to go back not even go back to your 16 year old self but like someone who's starting out right like the younger versions of you who are listening to this and thinking oh i i can ask for help okay that's interesting is there a this is my brain again where I'm like is there a strategy to find the best person I'm like I'm doing the plan b already right like how do you figure out who the how to ask for help or like who to ask for help is it finding people who 
a lot of the people we interview for this series talk about like you know find someone who's like going through the same thing as you are but also it can sometimes be really hard because you're all just sitting there in silence like looking around thinking i wonder if anyone is feeling like i am and someone has to say something first so if you had to not that there has to be like an answer but if you were talking to a 16 17 year old or a 21 year old who's like earlier on in in their own journey and they're figuring out who to ask for help how to speak up when they need the help what would you tell them i would tell them ask for help and don't allow yourself to get caught up in your head and give people don't give people a reason to say no don't give yourself a reason to not ask because at the end of the day if you don't ask you don't get and also the worst case scenario is they say no but then you go and ask the next person and then you ask the next person and then you just keep asking and then you get used to asking people for help because now we're creating new habits these are good habits to have as opposed to just carrying constant burdens on your shoulder and just keeping quiet about it like it's not healthy it's not always a good place to be in but i also understand sometimes it can take a lot of confidence for people to just ask for help who aren't always used to it so i would say baby steps um baby steps ask someone if they say yes great and then then you can get used to asking more and more people for help but yeah i think it's important to always seek assistance in in any place in every any area from the people who you know family friends loved ones um because even if they can't help you they might point you in the direction of someone who can and once you wrote the book and started talking about your experience after you retired or even while you were still um still professionally competing were there were you did you have teammates did you have like other people who who were coming to you and saying oh yeah i'm like I didn't know I could have turned to you for help or support or I'm going through the same thing too. Like, have you heard from others who who you've worked with who are kind of in it or have been in it as well? Yeah, I have. I have actually. So when, once the book came out, there was a lot of my teammates who were super, super happy for me. And, you know, they would send me messages. You know, not even just teammates, but athletes who, who I knew from other countries around the world who, I ha- who I'm really good friends with. They've just been super, super supportive, but they also understand what it's like because, you know, we're, we're all professional athletes in in a, in a small, in our own little world, in our own bubble, and not everyone's going to get it. But to have this opportunity to just tell your story in your own words, um, it's just been, yeah, just extremely powerful. And I've enjoyed every every single bit of the process, but yeah. My teammates have been super supportive. They also wish they um, were actually in the book. So a few of them were like, why didn't you write about me in the book? Why didn't you write about me? And I'm like, "Um, sorry, the book's not about you. It's about me. If you're in there, then you're in there. If you're not, you're not. And that's okay. Maybe you should write your own book. But no, um, most of them have been, you know, super, super supportive. And, you know, that means a lot. And something you said about, like, using your voice, telling your story, it... It, like it means so much to me and it means so much I imagine to so many people just speaking out can sometimes feel really scary um, because you don't know how people will respond I go through personally the layers of will anyone care that's always my first I tend to get stuck at will anyone care and after that it's oh but what will people say will they believe me will they understand me will they like completely miss mm-hmm. the point and 
wonder why why they aren't in the book which your you know your teammates weren't doing it in a bad way but like will people like pick up on the wrong piece of not the like one piece of it and say this is the story without seeing the full picture um and for anyone who's like trying to figure out should i speak up in whatever scale right maybe in a much smaller scale of i really want to say something because like my workplace isn't okay or the like the semi-professional league that I compete in like I see some things happening both to me and my teammates which like aren't okay but I'm really scared of speaking out what would you like how would you approach that and how did you approach that when you decided that it's time to say something um gosh I think I did it in a way in which what I would think to myself what is going to bring me peace what is going to bring me peace what is also going to give me an opportunity to help other people because the thing is athletes don't always speak up like I've mentioned because you've got all these stipulations you know contracts and you know funding and you know you're in the public eye um but you're also not obligated to speak up about certain things but in my sport in particular there's there's been a, a lot of um historic cases relating to abuse for example and sometimes some athletes will not speak up about it. The majority won't. If there's something related to sports that becomes political, most athletes tend to keep quiet because it's because people you're always scared of what what the consequences are if you say the wrong thing or if if they pick up the wrong soundbite or if you give a quote and it's completely taken out of context. And that's happened so many times. So that's why I think or I believe a lot of athletes don't speak up. And I don't blame them, to be honest, because, you know, your this is your bread and butter. This is your career. If there's anything that could potentially ruin it outside of, you know, you not missing, me- you missing medals or you getting injured or whatever, um, I understand why athletes don't speak up because I've been in that position. However, sometimes it does take a lot for you to get to that place of comfort and peace and looking at what's going to give you happiness. And sometimes it is just being open, being very honest and being able to share what you've gone through, um, either in a book or with someone who you can trust or just someone close to you. And I think that's been definitely part of my healing journey. Um, because even when I would talk about these different things, I think I would always get in, into my own head when I was going through the chapters with, with the writing team. You know, I'm like, oh, can we take this out? Or oh, I'm not too sure. And then, you, and then you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a panic attack because I can't imagine people's reaction to me having gone through all of this and not have people know. Because when people see me, I'm usually happy-go-lucky, you know, quite bubbly. So the fact that I was enduring all of these different things, I'm thinking, do I want this in a book? And I, do I want it? Do I want people to read this? Are people going to look at me a different way? Is it going to be taken out of context? And in all honesty, all of the above did happen, but that's okay because ultimately it was always, I always had a goal. I was always on this mission. And if that means I have to tell my story and people sometimes, you know, get quotes or get a soundbite and, you know, see different things that are written in the papers about me uh, in regard to what I've written in the book instead of just reading the book itself, um, then so be it, you know. So, yeah, you just you just deal with it. It's, it's. I mean, 
I, I, I ultimately I knew I was I, I was on this mission to write this book, tell my story, and share it with the world, which I've done, and it couldn't have gone any better. And for someone who is thinking like you of speaking up, whether it's like someone who works at a bank or right, like someone in a very different world, someone who works at a company has a has a like a nine to five job, um, and is trying to figure out like how do I use my voice? I do have a voice. Mm-hmm but no one else is saying the things that I'm thinking or the things that I'm experiencing, right? No one is saying anything. Do they see it? Are they, are they experiencing it too? Like if you could say something to them of like, it's, is it, is it going to be okay? Like, how do you get through it? Right? Like, I think it was a case of, um, sometimes we would have these conversations and you would see things and the other athletes would see things and they wouldn't necessarily speak up about it, but you would, speak to them about it and you'd be like do you remember that thing that happened like you were present at and like yeah that was weird wasn't it that was really weird and then because you're now in a place you're now in a safe space where you can talk about it and it's not it's not as much of a secret anymore so you feel like the weight has been lifted off because you know you're halfway there because now you're able to share it with someone who you trust so the next step is trying to share it with a manager or um, you know, a boss or a tutor or someone who you know will able to help you, point you in the right direction. With HR, you know, human resources, hopefully, you know, just, just do your due diligence, Um, you know. But ultimately, I always say your happiness. Your happiness is what matters. And if something that you're encountering doesn't bring you peace, maybe it's time to move on and consider other options. It's not always the case. And I know everyone's circumstances is different, but the amount of things that I've seen change within individuals, especially with the impact of COVID, the things that people would tell me, like how their how their how their jobs was prior to COVID and how they how they were as an individual and how they've had a complete 360 on their career. You know, now, you know, if you're a working mum, for example, and I've got loads of friends who are working mums, they can work from home. So they're able to take care of the children and they don't feel, you know, as though they're neglecting their child in the process of, you know, you know, being a mother, but also being a worker mom as well. Um, and just like other people who've just been like, yeah, I've been in this job for years. I don't want to do it anymore. There's other things I can do with my life. And this is what I want to do. And I, I love that. I love it when people just take a leap of, th- a leap of faith, because that is exactly what I did throughout so many stages of my career. And I don't regret any of them whatsoever because one, it brought me a lot of success, which is obviously great. But in doing so, I trusted myself through the journey. So I didn't know what the outcome was was ever going to be because, you know, there was so many moments where there was instability and challenges and literal hurdles that you had to constantly jump over. But I, I believed in myself. I gave myself a chance. I gave myself opportunity. And, you know, I had great people to help and guide me along the way so yeah if it means you have to change different things in your life to find peace and happiness then I'm all for it I like that you came back to the peace and happiness bit because I wanted to ask you about like clearly your sport brings you so much joy right and so much purpose and like has been a defining part of your life and you like since the age of 16 as you said right you're not going to the park with your friends like you are putting in the hours um and also from everything you've written about everything you've shared it 
you've encountered a law which has made it an unsafe place for you in different ways. Mm-hmm. And how, like, how have you held both of those things to like to be true? It must be really hard where it's like, this is the thing that I want to do more than anything else in the world. This is what I'm exceptionally good at. This is what I'm like putting in the hours into like making happen, making my dreams come true. I am like an Olympic medalist. And also like I'm dealing with all of this awful shit at the same time. Yeah. Oof. Do you know what? I was just constantly on this mission. And with you being a, first of all, you being an elite athlete and you compete at the highest level. And with that, you're also a woman. So you're always going to come under so much scrutiny anyway, because you're thinking, well, when, when am I planning to get married or have a partner and then planning for babies, the future? These are the things that men don't have to deal with. And then you, with that also comes your, you know, your menstrual cycle. You know, there's been a lot of talk about that recently in the sporting world um, because it's just always a taboo. Like, why is it a taboo? But I would, I would just never give up on myself. You know, even when I couldn't stand the sessions, the workouts were super hard. Everything that you do when you compete in, the, in sports, especially high level, it's limited. So you've only got a limited amount of time to to achieve the goals that you set out for yourself so I was very fortunate because I just never ever gave up I never believed in myself I learned so much about myself along the journey and I would do the things that I absolutely irritated me like you know we're here tonight and I'm sitting down and I'm talking to you but I would be watching tv maybe and I'd also be doing some stretches before bed or I'd have to eat at a certain time, or um, I would have to get enough sleep and recovery. I'd have to do this, do that. There was just so many, so many sacrifices. And then you'd look on your options. So it's either you continue to prosper in your career, whether it's going well or it's going really badly, but you just keep pushing regardless of what the outcome could be. Or you go and do a nine-to-five job, and then what happens is, you become one and like no shade to anyone that this has happened to, but you were, then you become a has-been. So you are one of those people who watch the Olympic games on TV and you watch another athlete who you used to compete against. And then you go, oh my gosh, that could have been me. That should have been me. You know, I completely missed my moments. Why didn't I get, why did I give up on myself? Why did I do all of this? So and and that's exactly what happened. So once I started winning medals, becoming successful, I would see people in like Tesco's or in a supermarket or whatever, and they would I would bump into them. I'd be like, "Hi, how are you? How's the family? All of that things." And they, you know, they would say, "You know, congratulations on you know winning the medal, or you know, congratulations on performing so well. I'm so proud of you." But gosh, I remember when we used to compete against each other, and you know, I actually used to beat you, and I'd be like okay, but you didn't. And now look where I am and look where you are. So like, maybe you feel bad for giving up on yourself, but maybe that's a reflection of you. And you can't, you can look at me as an inspiration. That's great. But maybe you should, maybe if you hadn't given up on yourself or hadn't retired early or quit the sport at such a young age, you would have given yourself an opportunity to be in my space in in the position I'm in now. But you didn't. So, yeah, maybe you need to do some analyzing. 
So yeah, that's just <laughs> on top of my budget. But that is just an example of, of things that have happened as to why I didn't give up give up on myself and why um I just wanted to maximise the time that I had in the sport. And was there anything that like, wait, was that what was going through your head when you had, I imagine like everyone else, right? You had those moments of like, oh man, do I, do I want to keep doing this? This is really hard, right? Like, have I reached like, the have I reached my full potential or like can I really like win this medal can I really like qualify for whatever it is and were you thinking about those types of conversations where you run into that person at Tesco and was that your fuel <laughs> or was it like what was your fuel right like in those moments of like crisis the deep mo- crisis moments that we all face of like oof I don't know if I can keep going now do you know what they were so common during my career every year there was something every year especially when I moved events so I started as a 100, 200 sprinter. And then later on through my career, I moved to 400. And the 400 became very, I became very, uh, very successful in the 400. That's where I got uh, most of my medals from. But oh my gosh, the workouts and the sessions were just brutal. And I would just want to curl up and die when my coach would be like, yeah, this is your workout for today. I'm like... But I would always just give myself a chance. I get on the start line, just start, put one foot in front of the other and just do what needs to be done. If you don't get it right, you come back the next day and attempt to do it again. But I would just always challenge myself. So Challenge Annika was always there. I would do a lot of um, self... I would talk to myself in my head. So like, just be positive, self-positivity. I would do that in my head. So I wouldn't talk myself out of it. Because there's so many moments where you just end up doing a lot of self-sabotage and it's not healthy in the slightest. So I would always give myself moments of just be clarity. I just like stay calm, don't overthink, don't let your blood pressure spike. Let's just take it one step at a time. If you've got reps of like 150s or 300s, just take it one step at a time, go at your pace, but also give yourself the best opportunity to get the best out of the workout. And that's how I would do it. So it became fun and it became enjoyable. Even when I was dying, I was in pain, I had lactic, but I also had a great group of people and my training partners who would always help and encourage me um, through those workouts where I was just dying, the deaf ones. Um, So yeah, I remember those ones a lot. So yeah, just uh, just being positive. Like, you don't know what's going to happen unless you try. So after you try, that's when you can, like, deliberate and say, oh, okay, this went well, this didn't do well, but just give yourself the best opportunity. And I think that's what I did. Do you miss it? <sighs> yes and no. So I don't miss the workouts. I still work out now. I, st- I work out like three, four, five days a week, depending on what my schedule's like. Um, but I don't miss the, I don't miss competing that much, to be honest. I, I miss, I miss the friendships and I miss the camaraderie and the banter I had with so many people who became my friends throughout the sport. But I definitely don't miss competing. <laughs> I'm still super competitive. I went to the bowling. Um, I went to a bowling event like last week or the week before with my family and I I turn up to bowling and I'm so, so competitive and it will either go one way or the other. I will get either a strike or I will get no strikes. Like I'm not <laughs> consistent at all. And then 
during the games that we played, I ended up getting like three or four strikes out of nowhere. And I was on a roll and I was like, oh, this is really good. This is what it feels like to be competitive again. Um, so yeah, but that's fun. Competitive, not like to take it seriously, like it's your job. So I miss, I miss the camaraderie and my friends, but I'm also, I love being a spectator now. So there's no regrets. Um, I, I enjoy watching my teammates fulfill their own potential. I'm literally screaming from the rooftops, watching them compete, whether I'm going to the stadium to watch them or whether I'm sitting in front of the TV and watching. But yeah, I will always have love for the sport, but no, I, I, I like to live my life now. <laughs> I missed out on a lot of things. So I'm enjoying life as it is for the moment. And what do you hope, like, I imagine lots of things, but on, on the long list of things, or maybe the short list of things, like, what do you hope is going to change for the next generation of athletes, for the next generation of women in sport, the next generation of Black British women in sport? Like, what do you hope is changing and will continue to change? Oh, more opportunities for women. Um, equality for women in sport. Because when I was coming up, there wasn't really a thing to do with, like, you know, um, when you look at sponsorship of like how men are sponsored compared to the number of women who were sponsored, there's no equality whatsoever. So I, I can see that changing now, especially during like after, you know, the last couple of last couple Olympic cycles that have happened. Um, yeah, and I, I just want I want to see more exposure for young like black women as well. Black women in sport, I want us to be given the same opportunities as our white counterparts because there's a chapter I wrote in the book about how I was um, sponsored by a shoe company. I did a photo shoot for them and they didn't like the photos. So they ended up reshooting 99% of the photos with a white model. And, you know, it was it was so heartbreaking because I was quite young at the time you know, you start to doubt yourself, doubt your ability, literally doubt everything about yourself. And all I wanted to see was, you know, my being given the opportunity to just be on the front cover of a magazine or a billboard or something. And I thought that would have been a positive mood. But, you know, my shoe sponsor at the time had other ideas. Whereas now I'm seeing a lot more of us. I'm seeing so many so many black women who were given all these opportunities like billboards and posters like global campaigns even away from sports where can intent like the girls who are moving into the tech space um fashion industry you know modeling i i love all of that like all these sports women who've got so many other skills outside of sport like i love it and i i want to see a lot more of it so i think it is moving in the right direction but we've still got a long way to go but Again, I say all of that to say there's a lot of there's a lot of people, young women, and there's a lot of elite athletes in sport for the young girls who were coming up to be inspired by. That's, I mean, one. I'm so sorry that happened to you because that is awful, and just that's just awful. Um, and it's it's also hopeful what you're describing, where hopefully that never happens to anyone again. After, right. and that leads me very nicely into my last very cheesy question that I ask everyone about both like how awful everything is and also hope um, where this series is called Little Revolutions because we all want to change the world needs so many big things to change that are so much bigger than any one of us right whether we're taking on a big institution or we're dealing with 
systemic racism or the patriarchy and also like we all have power we all have voices we all have agency we can all do things even if we can't like change everything so for someone who's listening who wants to wants to do something small right who wants wants to do something that is like doable in their own life in, in that scale what little revolution could someone take to to speak out when things are things are broken or bad or not working or they don't feel safe or they they're up against an institution or something that's systemic that feels so much bigger than them? It's quite loaded. (laughs) Um, Give yourself a chance. Give yourself an opportunity. Honestly, what's the worst that could happen? So when 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 I was in the process of writing this book, I was filled with so much dread, fear and anxiety because of the things I was going to write. And again, there was a lot of self-sabotage. You know, even once you've released a book, you think, well, only like five people are going to buy it. No one's going to buy it. No one's going to care. And that would be like the worst thing. But also, would it matter that much? Because you've still been able to tell your story. Um, But I I just gave myself the best chance because ultimately, I, like I said, I want to tell my story. The worst that could happen is no one buys it. And that's okay. As long as I've been open and honest about the things that I've gone through, that is the most important thing. Um, because it's about helping other people along the way. So you never know, there might be someone listening or watching who has been inspired by my journey, inspired by my book, and it's left them in this same predicament or same position in their area of work or, you know, something that they're going through, you know, personally, and they haven't been in a place to speak up or be open about it. So yeah, shake up the revolution, give yourself an opportunity, give yourself, you know, time, space, but also, like, you don't know at the end of the day unless you speak, ask for help, um, yeah, and, yeah, help others along the way, which is, which is, um, which is why we do this, so, yeah. That's lovely, and I think it, it makes so much sense that, like, what you just said, which is so obvious, but really stuck with me, is, the world can't give you a chance if you don't give yourself a chance first, right? Like no one is going to know your story until and unless you share it. So exactly. That's it. So much power. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Um, no, I think we've covered everything. It's always good to ask. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and for sharing your story with the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, hope Hopefully people will get the opportunity to read my book, My Hidden Race, available online, in store, in all good bookshops. And yeah, hope you guys have enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Annika for this honest, raw and relatable conversation. Check out our show notes for more about where you can follow Annika and learn more about her and her work. This episode was brought to you by Frida. Our producers are Claire Richardson and Abisoye Adelusi, And I'm your host, Masuma Ahuja. Please don't forget to follow Little Revolutions wherever you listen to podcasts and to leave us a review. It really helps.